The fascinating Max de Winter lives on the screen in the person of Laurence Olivier. Why, it's Max de Winter. How do you do? The shy, unsophisticated young girl who dared to follow in the footsteps of the beautiful Rebecca is portrayed by lovely Joan Fontaine. How could I ask you to love me when I knew you loved Rebecca still? Whenever you touched me, I, I knew you were comparing me with Rebecca. What is the mystery of Rebecca? What dread secret is hidden within the silent walls of Manderley? Not only in this room. It's in all the rooms in the house. I can almost hear it now. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? Mrs. De Winter, may I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Manderley. Never seen a house like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you'd been a lady's maid. This is all very new to me. Oh, I'm sure you won't disappoint him, madam, if that's your concern. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. So, good evening. <laughs> <laughs> good evening. I'm not going to do a funny voice. You can't try to do Hitchcock, then you have to get out of his house. <laughs> Make him sound a bit like Michael Caine. <laughs> no, hi everybody. Uh, welcome back to The Wages of Cinema. And as always, I am your host, Jack. And always is with me is... Trash Panda Corey. And this time we're getting a little bit classy with you uh, this uh, evening. Um, we are doing actually our first Verses in quite a while. This was something that we did uh, a few times in the past. Um, remember we did it for Flatliners. Yeah. It might be something else that I'm forgetting, too, but that was the one I remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but we had this kind of on our mind for at least several weeks, um, and it was from, actually, because there is a new adaptation of the classic uh, Daphne du Maurier novel, uh, Rebecca, which uh, came to Netflix. And it made, suddenly reminded me, I think I just came out and asked you, like, oh, have you ever seen Rebecca? And, of course, your response was, No. <laughs> Which, you know... But... I kind of always wanted to see it. It's such a me movie, but I had never seen it. Yeah, and then it kind of... Sp it, this was also in the middle of when we were doing our uh, Psycho series watch, which you can go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard that yet. Uh, we're kind of going into a full-blown uh, Hitchcock mode recently, lately towards the end of this year, and you'll be able to hear some more about that very soon. But for right now, we're going to be talking about the two Rebecca's. So um, I don't know if we exactly have a format for this. I think our main tactic is going to be just kind of bouncing back and forth between uh, the two versions of this story. Yes, we'll be comparing them. Also, spoiler alert for an 80-year-old movie. I feel like we are going to speak <laughs> freely about all plot developments in both films. Yeah, so if you haven't seen, if you're really curious to see one or both of the Rebecca's, um, you know, go and, you know, Rebecca yourself out, get all the full Becca you can get, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly where you could see the original the Hitchcock film. I mean, I think it's probably on the Criterion channel or it is. It was released by Criterion years back and re-released. And then uh, the new one is on Netflix, as I just said. Um, and yeah, the original movie, which won Best Picture, for those who don't know, I'll do a very quick recap so we can leap off of here. Uh, you know, for those who may have not seen it, Rebecca is... Uh, about uh, this young woman and she you know is on you know often like Monte Carlo I think one summer and she meets this you know f widower who's very a little bit mysterious and he's very tight British upper crust lipped kind of guy <laughs> and you know and she you know falls for him you know against maybe your better judgment and he I guess kind of falls for her uh, although it's hard to see it, uh, they get married uh, while they're on this vacation, and then he takes her back to his uh, familial estate, which Manderley, which is Manderley, and of course the opening lines of the book Manderley uh, are very, very famous. You know, 
you know, I dreamt I was back at Mendeley, and, you know, I, I'm probably, did I misquote that just now? Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, then uh, Mrs. DeWinter has to deal with, you know, just everything that is at this uh, new home, uh, mo- you know, in particular, Mrs. Denvers, who kind of runs the, the, the estate, but also her new husband, who is, you know, kind of... Uh, not who she appears to be. So that's basically what we're working off of. And we have two vastly different visions of this, of this material. Yeah. So I don't think this is going to shock anyone. The 1940 version is much, 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 much better. Than yeah, well, I'll, add next, <laughs> I'll add an extra much in there. I'll from the grave. I'll add an extra much right there. Yeah, I mean, look, the original movie won Best Picture at the Oscars. I mean, it it, it only lost Best Director. Hitchcock only lost Best Director because he was up against fucking John Ford for The Grapes of Wrath, which, fine, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I might have still given it to Hitchcock. I can't believe I'm saying that. But it's like... I don't know, like, do you think that if, at first, I think you were wondering if you, early early on, before we had really formed, like, a full opinion of the new Rebecca, you were wondering if maybe you would have been kinder to it had you not just watched the Hitchcock version yes. a day before. And, I no longer feel that way, having seen it. <laughs> yeah, no, even from the, even from the start, I wasn't quite feeling the movie. I wanted to give it a shot, but it was just not really bringing me in. And I think there are a number of both technical reasons why and also uh, kind of choices in not just not even so much casting, but the direction of the actors. But we'll get into that in a minute. I mean, I think it's important for context to set up what is kind of so special about the Alfred Hitchcock version which is, and the, David O. Selznick produced it, and of course he was the one that got the Oscar, um, which is just how strongly, like, a vision Hitchcock puts on this story, that as soon as you're, the opening scene of, like, this, you know, showing you Manderley, and you look, and it, like, you're basically there, it looks like a haunted castle, and it opens almost like, the closest thing I can compare it to is, like, the opening of Beauty and the Beast. It's a good comparison. You know, and also when the Hitchcock then, when we finally return to Manderley, like, a half hour, like, maybe 20, 25 minutes later into the movie, it looks like a Disney castle. It looks like one of those great places in the movies. Like, itself, Manderley is another character. And it's there, and it sounds like a cliche, but it really is designed. And the cinematography, like, I was reading up on it, and I, I, I could definitely see it now thinking about it. Hitchcock beat Orson Welles to the punch by, like, a year and was <laughs> using deep focus to show how vast the spaces are that these characters are in. And it really sets the mood for everything else to follow. It's not meant to be entirely even realistic. It's like taking this story of this woman completely in over her head and it like abstracts it. It makes it even more fantastical and supernatural. It's from her point of view. And basically Rebecca is an excellent film about a woman being abused by the emotional cripples of the British aristocracy. And you made a fantastic comparison when we were watching it to the You're Wrong About podcast did a series about Charles and Diana. And one of the things they emphasized is how the British monarchy basically makes emotional cripples out of all its members and how being raised in an aristocratic environment, the combination of immense financial privilege and total emotional deprivation makes monsters out of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, and that was almost why like 
at least, you know, for some time in the movie, like, it didn't last until by the end, but, like, I almost felt, I'm not going to say sorry for, but I could see a twinge of sympathy for Mr. DeWinter. Like, he's, you know, he's had to grow up in this world, and it's like, how could he turn out any other way? And, and meanwhile, Mrs. Danvers... I mean, I don't think it's any mystery. I think for people maybe watching in 1940, I wonder what people were thinking when they watched it then. But watching it today in 2020, I think it's one of the first clear examples of Hitchcock having a kind of clearly gay coded character with Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, so I felt like this movie worked really well as a character study of a woman navigating extremely difficult circumstances. Yeah, and the woman, by the way, Joan Fontaine. And it works really well as class commentary and how all these characters have been deformed by the rigid strictures of British class life. And I do agree with you that there's pretty strong lesbian subtext in the Mrs. Danvers role. So you could also look at how Mrs. Danvers has been twisted, not only by the fact that she's in service, Mm -hmm. but the fact that she has a love that dare not speak its name. And one of the things I said to you before we started watching the new movie, Rebecca in 2020, is the only reason to remake a movie like Rebecca is if you are going to do things you literally could not do in 1940. Yeah. And, and, and the remake, by the way, it's, it's PG 13 and boy, I'll get into how this is like the tamest PG 13 I've ever seen. Yeah. So one thing I was hoping for was making that lesbian subtext text. And I was actually hoping maybe they could make it explicit. Yeah. That Mrs. Danvers had specifically, like, she was really in love with Rebecca. And I was even hoping for maybe a situation where it turns out that Rebecca, in addition to all her man friends, maybe she threw down with Mrs. Danvers once. Yeah. Yeah, she she got a little bit into that, you know, uh, that that clam. Yeah, so... (laughs) What I was hoping for is that the movie, a modern remake, could maybe push the envelope. Because we don't have the, like, there's no haste code now. Yeah, and not only that, it's also, it's for Netflix. So, why not show, like, you don't even have to worry really about the MPAA. Like, you're, like, who's going to really censor Netflix content, unless, of course, it's Netflix. Um, Unfortunately, this is very common, I've noticed, with Netflix original movies, where they're very tame. Like, I keep getting hooked. I keep watching their diet thrillers. You know, movies like Dangerous Lies, Fatal Affair. I, I just suddenly thought of something. Do you think it's because, like, Netflix has, like, the content, like, in certain countries like China or places where like th- maybe this is Netflix kind of trying to self-censor. Yeah, I think so. Because one <sighs> thing I've noticed as someone who is a primo couch potato who watches <laughs> a lot of television and which means I watch a fair amount of Netflix content and I yeah. say I watch a fair amount of Netflix original content. They almost never use the freedom to, that they have. Like, for instance, t- HBO content is much more explicit than Netflix content. And I'm not saying all content has to be explicit, but again, if you're taking an excellent movie and remaking it, yeah. why? I don't see the point unless well, you're going to do something you were literally forbidden from doing. And, yeah, well, it's, well, it's not even like, I could imagine that, Again, I I started to read the book, but I d- honestly didn't get far enough to really say like mm-hmm. what is the similar or, or different from the, these two versions. I really didn't. I, but at the same time, I can't necessarily imagine that a book that was from the 1930s would have had a lot of like very explicit like sexual moments or even 
maybe it would have had maybe a little bit more of an intonation about the lesbian part. But again, maybe that was Hitchcock bringing his own interpretation to it. And, you know, Hitchcock could be it's a little bit of a perv. And, but that's like sometimes in cinema you need perverts. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to make Rebecca in 2020, it needs to have intense perv energy. Well, that's like, it's funny because then like, you know, much later in his career, Hitchcock then made The Birds, which also is based on a Daphne du Maurier story. And that is also this story where you have like these two people who sh- maybe or should or shouldn't be in a romance, but there's like this psychic energy type force that's kind of coming between them. And in this movie, it's Mrs. Danvers and the birds, it's the birds. <laughs> and like Hitchcock kind of understood, you know, try you, you can go big. You can have these big visual ideas in your movie. And that's what makes Rebecca so special. Like the, the 1941 so special it's cause it is so much like, it kind of feels larger than life. Yeah. It has this feeling about it. Like, you know, everything isn't quite so realistic. Like it, it almost feels like the more I think about it now, after watching it yesterday, it's like, you know, who could have actually done this? Again, David Lynch. Yes. David Lynch's Rebecca would have been absolutely nuts, but it would have been like what this material calls for. Yes, because again, if you're going to do something like this again, go big or go home. Like if you're coming for the king. (laughs) That's why I said my review. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, to this director, you know, guy, Ben Wheatley, you know, like, look, I think I might even, I, I don't I could be wrong in this. I think I saw, like, him say in an interview that he intentionally didn't watch the Hitchcock movie before making this. And I say bullshit. I think he knew, but, like... The, the Hitchcock movie is just more of everything. The Hitchcock movie is darker, yet it's also funnier. It's, like, but it also just, the feeling of it, like, it's... It's like the way he transitions in the movie and get, lets like scenes have breathe life into it. Like, you know, again, I talked about that opening where, you know, you have the narration over the, the images of Manderley. And then if I remember correctly, he then cuts to like, you know, all these waves of the ocean. You know, it's like, you know, that's almost like a metaphor for like these passionate, you know, waves of things. And then that's when you first see that's when Mr. DeWinter meets the future Mrs. DeWinter because he like Lawrence Olivier is looking over a cliff. Yeah. Which is interesting, too, because we're not again, we're not we're going to hold off talking about this movie. But that's funny how that's how suspicion ends (laughs) on the edge of a cliff by the ocean. (laughs) But yeah, it's I think, too, Hitchcock's Rebecca is so thoroughly from Mrs. DeWinter's point of view. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. We are really seeing this world through her eyes. Yeah. Which means Hitchcock is effectively communicating her escalating paranoia, her fear. This, The 1940 Rebecca is so rich and it's so tense and then, it's just, it's excellent. And there's also, in addition to the steadily increasing suspense, there's also this, like, constant, like, comedy of manners subject yes. to it. Yeah, well, well, what you said watching it, which I thought was interesting, because, I mean, I haven't sat down to watch one of these, an episode of this show from beginning to end, but I've seen you, over this past year, watch Downton Abbey. And... You you said you know, and I could kind of tell like after you mentioned it that this is like a bit like Hitchcock making a satire of Downton Abbey before Downton Abbey. Yeah. So in the very beginning of COVID quarantine, way back in March, I decided I was going to watch Downton Abbey. I watched the entire series in a very compressed time frame. I watched the entire series in about a month, which honestly is not the way I would recommend watching Downton Abbey because it's really 
involving at first, but when you watch it in such a compressed time yeah. frame, it becomes incredibly it, repetitive. It, it's a lot of teen crumpets for <laughs> one compressed time frame. So, within the space of a month, I went from I love this show, which is kind of how I felt about the first three seasons, to I hate this show, which is how I felt about seasons five and six. But what... I noticed about Downton Abbey is Downton Abbey comes from a perspective that's pretty sympathetic to the British aristocracy. And so Hitchcock is kind of subverting what Downton Abbey plays straight. Hitchcock is kind of like the Mad Men social commentary. <laughs> ah, uh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit like, and I think that maybe that's coming from two, like, different kind of, again, having a point of view. And we're going to come back to that in also the 2020 version. And, spoiler, there isn't one. Um, <laughs> like, the fact that I think Hitchcock, if I remember from reading biography of him, he was like a... Um, like a working class guy. Like he wasn't raised in like aristocracy. Like I think the guy who wrote Downton Abbey, he was like kind of more of an upper crust. He's literally guy. an aristocrat yeah. or like he's in the, his name is Julian Fellows. And he comes from a perspective that's very, um, very conciliatory towards the British upper class. And, and so Hitchcock is subverting what Downton Abbey plays Straight, but one the reason why I thought of Downton Abbey because another thing about the British upper class is incredibly minute details get blown into world historic catastrophes. So things like what sauce do you use to cook your meat? How do you organize your desk? What do you wear? If you drop something, how do oh, you yeah. respond? Oh well, yeah, well that's a, that's a big that's a moment in. Uh, Rebecca, that both versions, yeah, like, oh my God, there's been like a, a priceless thing that's broken, and it can't be put back together again. <laughs> and one of the things um, that I think Rebecca, the Hitchcock version, really emphasizes is how incredibly claustrophobic this life is. Yeah, and also that's emphasized too by I think you know just. Um, you know, Judith Anderson uh, plays uh, uh, the, you know, uh, Mrs. Danvers. Why don't you go? Why don't you leave Mandalay? He doesn't need you. He's got his memories. He doesn't love you. He wants to be alone again with her. You've nothing to stay for. You've nothing to live for, really, have you? Look down there. It's easy, isn't it? Why don't you? Why don't you? Go on. Go on. Don't be afraid. When she shows, is every scene in the movie, she wears the exact same outfit. She's wearing, like, this completely black dress that makes yeah. her, like, there's, like, no figure to her at all. Same hairstyle. Same. <laughs> and another thing Rebecca has to do is it has to make the characters vivid enough to be entertaining while also being realistically British upper crust, which this movie totally excels at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and also, and you get, the, and uh, like, God, Laurence Olivier is so well cast in this movie. As a relentlessly nasty. Yeah, that's what I forgot about that. Like, I feel like when I first saw this movie, and I think I, I, I'd only seen it once before from start to finish, and it was like back when I was in college, I didn't remember Laurence Olivier being such like a mean person to Miss, to Mrs. DeWinner. And, like, you would think early on he would have some kindness. And you kind of see, like, a little bit of, like, a smile here and there. And, like, and but, like, not really. And it's, what's fun, what's great is there's that one scene, which is not in the remake, 
uh, because I don't think he could have had the you know strength to pull it off. There's that one scene where Mr. DeWinner and Mrs. DeWinner are watching like the home movies. Yeah, and it's like you suddenly see him and her kind of like playing around, and it's like this like pictorialized idealized vision of what their life is supposed to be like. Yeah. And they even say to each other, one day we'll show, we'll be able to show this to our kids. And it's like, and I think then like the scene actually gets cold. Cause I think she says something wrong and he like completely closes up. Well, all she does is say something wrong. You know, it's funny when we watched this together last night, now keep in mind, I'd never seen the movie. I never read the book. So I knew the very general, like, premise of Rebecca, but I didn't know any specifics. Ten minutes into the movie, I turned to you and I said, Laurence Olivier is a serial killer (laughs) in this movie. Well, he has kind of, like, I told you, like, he has a little bit of that, like, Christian Grey energy or something. Where as soon as you see him, you think, oh... Oh, you're you're so insulated from the world that you have like a you're you're trouble. He is so awful, even in the courtship scenes. He's incredibly cruel to her. And yet, like the thing is, you know, we want. I think we might wonder watching it today, like, why is she put up with this? Why is she marry him? Well, what choice does she have? She her parents are gone. Like. She basically has to, you know, she's either going to wind up like an old maid, yeah. like the woman she's caring for in those early scenes, or is she, or is she I the guard think, of her? Well, she's the paid companion okay. of Edith Von Hopper, right. but Edith Von Hopper, she has a daughter, so she was married at one point. Like, we don't see a husband at any point. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a good point. But about that. she's either, I mean, maybe she's a widow. Yeah, but but maybe like yeah, for Mrs. DeWinner, like again, we keep calling her that because she doesn't have a name exactly that. And by design. Another thing, but you know, Daphne Du Maurier, feminist icon. Yeah, um, it's it's the it's like, but yeah, but that's what choice she has. She's like, well, you know, I do love this man, and maybe she like, well, like maybe she will like psych herself into thinking that. Like that's what I thought was the fascinating thing about that character is that it's like, does she, does she really love him or is she just trying to build it up in her mind? Because this is my one option. This will be how my life will be okay from now on. I think she loves the idea of him. Yeah. And I think, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that frankly, the patriarchy has pretty severely limited her path in life. So I, what I find kind of interesting, again, is social commentary, is I read the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. DeWinter as not a love match in the slightest. No, but it's a, a marriage t- of convenience. Yeah, it's a marriage of convenience between a woman living a life of quiet desperation and a neurotic abuser. Yeah. Now, I do have one criticism okay. of the Hitchcock Rebecca. Yeah. I think the movie goes a little soft on his character at the end in a way I don't appreciate mm-hmm. because through the entire movie, he treats her like absolute <laughs> garbage. And then at the end of the movie, when he has his great big speech about how he killed Rebecca, and the movie, A, tries to soft-pedal the killing by making it seem like, oh, well, you know, I pushed her really hard and she fell. And then they also give us the twist that Rebecca was dying of cancer and was going to be yeah. dead of cancer very soon. I do not like that because I feel like the movie was trying to soften that character when he was so abrasive and disgusting throughout the entire movie. I didn't appreciate what I saw as like a last minute attempt to soften. Him. See, I didn't necessarily see that as exactly like entirely softening him. Like, like by the end you're, 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 you're led to believe, okay, the Mr. and Mrs. Winter, they're going to stay together. 
I don't see that relationship being very good. No. Like, that's suddenly not magically going to be like, oh, now we can be happy forever because you didn't intentionally try to kill her. No, that's going to come up again. Like, I get what your what your point is. I do understand, like, what you mean that, that, that he is. So, like, I, I think the movie didn't... You know what it is? I think you know. Yeah, that's part. That's part of also the time that it was made in. If he had been a lot more vicious as like a total killer, like if it hadn't been like an accident, and you know maybe the cancer part is a little much, but I can I can let that slide. Then you have then he has to die at the end. Yeah, and I don't think that like that doesn't really solve that doesn't isn't as interesting as the idea that no they're together. And, like, they're, they're going to be miserable. Yeah, like, I don't need him to die, or I don't need him to get arrested and imprisoned, but I didn't appreciate the movie trying to say, like, hush, hush now, it's okay that he killed Rebecca because she was about to die anyway. It's, it's a fair criticism. Or, I just didn't see it quite as harshly as you did. Also, because I am Trash Panda Corey... I was disappointed that Rebecca was not sh- knocked up with an incest baby. Because... <laughs> oh, yeah, but we should mention that uh, George Sanders, who is always, you know, when he's given a good role, he's he's just delicious. He's just, he can eat up a part like nobody's business. He's so good here. And he plays Rebecca's cousin who, yeah, they were playing whoopsie-doopsie. <laughs> Yeah, I use some period correct lingo. So yeah, I was actually a little disappointed that Rebecca wasn't actually pregnant with her cousin's child. I, I'd be curious to know, like, I again, I wish now I'd read the book. God, I need more concentration in my life to like sit down and read things because I'd like to know if like that was really. If, like, that was in the Du Maurier book. If anybody maybe has read the book, maybe send us an email, let us know. Because um, that would be interesting if they had to change that. Um, you know, like, that 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 needed to... That couldn't be addressed for, like, 30 years to, like, Chinatown. <laughs> where it's just like, no, we, we're going to go with Shane Baby this time. <laughs> sister, daughter, sister, daughter. Um... Yeah, but no, yeah, I get, I get what you mean. And unfortunately, that's something that is not in the remake. Yeah, so when we sat down for the remake, I was also of the opinion that Rebecca was a very, very good movie. But I didn't think it was a perfect I, movie. I, I'm I'm watching it again. I I love it. I think it's definitely one, it's one of my favorite Hitchcocks. It, like... And it's not quite, it is, in some ways, it fits very much into his oeuvre, but it also feels like it's, it's like his, it's like his gothic masterpiece. It's like his tale that slides into a lot of other genres. Even, it's like, it has a little romance, but it's way too dark for that. It's kind of a horror movie, but you don't need to have any blood. It's like, you know, um, Mrs. Danvers is like so like twisted and evil but yet you completely understand her and like it's there's just so much to it that i really appreciated watching it again and i only i only wish i could have seen it like in like a big old movie house or something like that would have been perfect um the new uh the new rebecca's trash good night everybody yeah the new rebecca is awful and trust me it is and another Not thing, fun trash. that's the other thing I've got to say. As a connoisseur of bad movies, it is not fun bad at all. This movie is incredibly boring. Um, I've got to say, Maxime De Winter is not nearly as mean in the Rebecca remake as he is in the original, but they sucked out 50% of his meanness and gave him no personality whatsoever to compensate. It, he, he's the, like... He's in a weird way, almost like a PC Maxim to Winter, yeah. which is so weird because it's just set in the nineteen thirties. Like, just and, and the the weird thing about this too is, for those who don't know, so this movie's directed by this guy Ben Wheatley, and I've seen a, I've seen more movies of his than Cor- than Corey has, but we've seen a, a, a couple of his movies together. 
um, he made this like almost like a Tarantino knockoff, but it was like very entertaining called uh, Free Fire yes. a few years back. If you haven't seen that, that's a lot more fun. Hey, Jillian Murphy was in that. Yeah. God, I'm one. I'm now just picturing. And then he also made another movie called uh, High Rise, which is not good. Uh, which I absolutely uh, but, hated. Which, that but, movie. but I will say it, it, that movie's a mess. It has a lot of problems. He was taking a big swing with that, though. Yeah. He was trying to be like very unconventional and like. He took a very difficult book and tried to realize it. It didn't work, but I could see why he wanted to make that. And he's made a couple other very surreal, like bizarre movies. He made this movie years ago called Kill List, which I it's been so long since I've seen it. I don't remember a whole lot, except it gets very dark and deranged in like the last third. And then he made another movie called A Field in England, which is like one of these unclassifiable movies that's set in like the 17th century, literally in a field in England. <laughs> and it has like a, its own vernacular that is almost like, maybe almost like if the Coens had done it or something, but like much weirder than that. I can't even describe it. If you just go on YouTube and search a field in England, you'll see like, wait, what is this? And the most damning thing I can say about this movie is I, this could have been made by anybody. It's incredibly boring. I said to Jack, I feel like Netflix engineered this movie to be played in the background as you scroll through your phone. Yeah. It's like with the exception of a couple of like sort of dream sequences, which are even those aren't very interesting. It's like, this this movie is so dull and lifeless. It's just not very. It doesn't have a point of view. That's yes. what we're getting back to. That's why I wanted to come back around to. It's like you can have some like faults with the Hitchcock movie, but that had a very vivid point of view. It also created a point of view of for the character, almost in like you know, like how Scorsese did has done that repeatedly in his yeah. career where you are actually seeing the world through this character's eyes. You don't have any point of view in Rebecca. You're just seeing like, okay, now she's met Mr. DeWinter at this resort and now they're having lots of fun and we're going to chop this up into like a montage and we're not letting any scenes breathe through life. It's like we have one scene where they sit down at a lunch and she eats clams, but we don't really see what brings them together. It's like, the original didn't necessarily show why they were attracted, but that was the point. Like, but they, but Hitchcock let scenes breathe. Selznick told him, you gotta let scenes breathe. This movie is just like, Oh, oh we're now falling in love. Oh, we're going to go for a swim. David oh. Early called their courtship scene like a cologne ad. Yeah. Yeah. It's sweet. It's like, so like pretty and vapid. And, like, soulless. This movie has no soul. It's just, like, a series of scenes that are, like, imitating what this story is. Yeah, and in in Hitchcock's Rebecca, I didn't buy romantic chemistry between Mr. and Mrs. DeWinter Mm -hmm. in their courtships. Yeah. But... I bought why they were together. I understood why the future Mrs. DeWinter felt kind of obligated into this marriage of convenience and why she thought she could make it work. And I understood why Mr. DeWinter, for all his faults and neuroses as a person, I could understand his attraction to this kind of blank slate that he could project upon. One thing I... We're watching a lot of Hitchcock movies lately. And one thing I said to you is, to Hitchcock, relationships are transactional. And your relationship with another person has nothing to do with them. It just has to do with what you can project onto them. Which is is why... I mean, I can definitely see why the... Kind of famously, the the authors of the book of that 
was the base of Vertigo, they wrote that for Hitchcock. Yeah. And they knew what was up. They had seen, they, clearly they had seen Rebecca. They had seen like Shadow of Doubt. They had seen those movies where they knew like, here's a story that Hitchcock will like. And of course he did. Um, in this movie though, it's like, what attracts these two to each other except, oh, he's hot. Oh, she's kind of like pretty. Yeah. Like, I don't see much of what, except that I guess because he has like a nice gold suit. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't think the attraction in Hitchcock's Rebecca is healthy or wholesome or even traditionally romantic. But there's something there. Yeah, and I'll, and then if you what you don't but what you don't replace it with is this sanded down, almost kind of like genteel kind of guy who, it's like you don't get much menace out of Army Hammer. And no. here's where I have to be mean. I I didn't like Lily James in this movie. I I at first I thought maybe is she is she miscast is she misdirected? She's she's so lost at sea in this movie. And I think part of that is that she wasn't directed very well, probably. But at the same time, I also just... That's another thing, that you have someone like Joan Fontaine, who is one of the most beautiful women of her time. it's, It's actually ironic. Like, originally, Selznick wanted Olivia de Havilland, who was unavailable. So it's like, oh, hey, she has a sister. We'll just cast her instead. <laughs> and worked out because she's like, so like pitch perfectly beautiful. Like Joan Fontaine looks like a Disney princess. Yeah. Lily James. I mean, I think she, it's funny. I think she actually played Cinderella in the, what, like the Disney remake, but she just, it's like anytime she's like, has to be dramatic. She looks like she's like, Looks more like she's nauseous. I thought she was a very generic, almost audience surrogate and not a specific personality. But that's, but that's the problem. It's like, how do I have a point of entry into this person? Like, I don't really get what she's really seeing in this guy. And that's a major, major problem. And then with Army Hammer, he also, I think, is either miscast or misdirected or both, like a combination of the two. And I think you were you, you were reading that like he was uh, like dealing maybe with like divorce drama. I read on Letterbox, so I was too lazy to Google this to actually verify it. But I read on Letterbox that he was actually getting divorced while making this movie. Someone so. didn't want that arm and hammer anymore. <laughs> How do you do, Mr. DeWinter? Is this some kind of joke? Of course not. It is the painting. I thought. Go and change. What? What is it? What have I? Go and change. Now. <laughs> so I'm sorry if that if random letterbox commenters were wrong. I'm and, too lazy to look at that. And it's not you know, Army Hammer can be a really good actor in the right part. Like he's you know great in the social network. He's actually fine in that man from Uncle remake. I didn't see that. Um it that was it wasn't great, but he was you know let me put it this way. If you're going to have Henry Cavill in your movie, have Army Hammer, because he'll come off better. <laughs> and but also, then... his performance is not a problem at all in my nemesis film, Call Me By Your Name. Trust me, I don't think he gives a bad performance. That's not my yeah, problem film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny to think that, yeah, he was better in that than... than he really this. is. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's, but it's also then, like, the rest of the supporting cast, it's, like, very unmemorable... There's this one actor they got for uh, the, the the cousin Jack. Uh, um, his name's I think Sam Riley. He's been in a number of the Ben Wheatley movies, and he's not you know he doesn't hold a candle to George Sanders. It's like you know you can hear George Sanders from another room, and it's like ooh, that's his jo- that that's Sheer Khan, man. Like, but and uh, and then the other thing that's Unfortunately, a little disappointing too is Kirsten Scott Thomas. Yeah, she's Mrs. Danvers, and 
like literally every character in this movie, I thought Mrs. Danvers had about 50% of her, like, menace just sucked out. Yeah, it's like the Austin Powers thing. <laughs> I lost my mojo! Yes, these characters, they have no mojo. And I'm really irritated that, for instance, in Hitchcock's Rebecca, there are, I think, like, two scenes where Mrs. DeWinter has to interact with Mr. DeWinter's sister and brother-in-law. And these scenes are perfect little masterworks of aristocratic knifing. Like, the sister is so nasty and so cruel, but with this thin veneer of politeness. Well, that's where, like, his also the satire comes into it. And if you don't have that, you're just having kind of you know, empty kind of bickering between, like, characters who were not really that invested in anyway. I thought basically every character in the movie was a lot nicer to Mrs. DeWinter in the remake than in the original. Yeah, and but then that compounds the problem of what is her conflict here? I mean, yeah, she's finding out, oh, there's this woman, there's this, you know, I'm finding out more about, you know, the the previous you know you know Mrs. De Winter and you know there's this old house by the beach that you know, I'm not supposed to be in and yeah. you know the dogs found it and, blah, 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 and then we're getting into the room and but then it's like but why what where's the stakes where's the conflict there the characters had much harder edges in the Hitchcock movie. like Which is amazing because it's a movie from 80 years yeah, ago. If your movie is softer and tamer than a film that's 80 years old, I was hoping, another thing I said to you was, if you're going to make a movie like this, not only should you maybe do something plot-wise or theme-wise that you would literally be forbidden from doing in 1940, but you should go maybe super over-the-top tonally and make this, like, an incredibly pulpy, lurid story with every character is, like, super over-the-top. Maybe have some, like, really explicit sex scenes. Maybe, you know, Mrs. DeWinter puts up with Mr. DeWinter sucking because he, he fucks her real uh, it's, good. It's okay. I'll I'll make the porn version of Rebecca for you. <laughs> I'll make the hot Rebecca that fucks. <laughs> I have no particular fidelity to the, sub, to the source material because I've never read the book. But basically... You need to bring a distinct perspective. Like, what you mentioned about David Lynch was also a really good idea. Like, maybe make it really surreal. Or something I said to you, during the movie, during the remake, there are multiple scenes where Lily James thinks she sees a woman in a long red dress with, like, long dark hair. And there's two scenes where, like, there's these weird, obviously CGI, like, bird formations. Yeah, that's yeah, that's why I meant about the dream scene. Yeah, but maybe, again, if you're going to remake this movie, maybe go whole hog and make it a full-on, like, supernatural mm. film. Yeah, well, the other thing you brought up, um, you know, Guillermo del Toro uh, made a movie, you know, several years back, Crimson Peak, which I know is not exactly the same story, but in some ways it's it's kind of close. I mean, it's about a woman who gets kind of seduced by this, you know, swarthy British man and they go to his estate and there's a woman there who, you know, really doesn't want this new bitch around <laughs> and she has a very sordid past. And, you know, in that movie, you know, that's more explicitly like a ghost horror movie. And, and you know, and ironically, the, the parts with the ghosts in that were kind of the weakest part. But everything else, you know, he understood, like, make this, like, ethereal. Make this so vivid that it yeah. really pierces your consciousness. You still need to make it real and interesting. You, you really do make sure the psychology of the characters... Yeah has an impact but you can also then express that through the language of cinema yeah you actually can use you know this thing called the grammar of cinema you can use colors and sounds and not just have this very placid like exterior that 
you know, it, you know, I, I said, in, you know, I, I wrote in a review of this, like right after I watched it, like this can be enjoyed by like a grandmother that usually like consumes Christian movies. <laughs> yeah, this is the most, the remake is the most placid ass movie I've ever seen. It's just so tame. And if you want to see, yeah, if you want to see a Rebecca remake, watch the movie Crimson Peak, which is awesome. Yeah, and you know you get like Jessica Chastain basically is that movie's Mrs. Danvers and yeah, and Tom Hiddleston, amazing. Mia Wasikowska, I don't really know how to pronounce her last name. Yeah, she was fine. Um, but yeah, so so I I don't know what else to say about this new Rebecca. I mean, I mean, I guess you could say well it's ten minutes shorter, but it feels like it's a half hour longer. Yeah, I want to emphasize again, it is not good bad at all. It's and, incredibly dull. And what's amazing though is watching these two movies back to back, the story beats are basically the same. Yeah. When you look at like the actual like breakdown of like the skeleton of these two films, they're practically the same. And it's a fascinating study of how to do this material and how not to do this material. How like and I don't know, maybe it's just my sensibility. Maybe there's someone out there watching the new Rebecca that's like, oh, this really touched me deeply. And, you know, more power to you, pal, but like you need like more inspiring art in your life. Like there's literally a moment in this movie. I pointed this out to you. There's a moment in the new Rebecca that looks like Thomas Kincaid painted the painter of light designed (laughs) one of the shots. God. Yeah. This movie wasn't even visually impressive. It's like, you can't even get right that moment when she first comes to Manderley and that's, again, the other thing I mentioned earlier, how Manderley is such a imposing ama- you know, thing in, in the Hitchcock film that you go you, from the outside. It's like, you know, like going to Wayne Manor and inside, you know, it has that same type of thing, like in Batman, where the table's so long that like characters on either side would be like these little dots talking to each other. In the new one, it's just a house. Yeah. It's just a house, and like the the the, the servants are just waiting outside when Mister and Missus De Winter pull up. Whereas in the Hitchcock movie, when she comes in, they're like there, and it's like, oh, that's you're, you're, that's almost you get almost like a laugh the way they yeah the appear. way they shoot Manderly, it doesn't seem awe inspiring at all. Honestly, until they're inside, it just seems like a regular house. The way they shoot. But even inside, it doesn't seem that important. You know who should have done this? Who? Yorgos Lanthimos. Yes. Like, you watch The Favorite, and, like, that place is, like, a great location. Like, that palace in The Favorite. And maybe he would have made it really weird. (laughs) But, But yeah, this also, the remake of Rebecca was not creepy for a hot second. There was yeah. not one element. And I said to you at one point, I was like, speaking of the Lily James character, I was like, I don't feel her pain at all. Yeah. Yeah. I No, that, that, I didn't feel her pain. Like, it was very, like, very simpering, her performance. Very, like, I'm sad now. I make a sad face. And, yeah. like, oh, and I, I felt like Livia Soprano. Oh, poor you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, again... I don't think the remake makes it seem like living in Manderley is super fun, but it seemed much easier psychologically to live there in the remake than in the original. Yeah, it didn't seem like any big problem. I mean, he he tr- he, and even when like his, when he tries to visualize some type of <laughs> moment, like they, they, there's this one space where Mrs. Danvers confronts Mrs. DeWinter. It's basically that scene like it's almost or it's one of those scenes that was so memorable in the hitchcock film and it's like a room full of mirrors uh-huh. been there done that yeah. like this whole movie it's just so dull so boring it's so dull it i feel like too it de-emphasizes her isolation because we still see her like 
bedding down with her husband at night. Like, we don't see explicit sex scenes. No. But we see them literally sleeping together multiple times. And we see them having some measure of platonic affection for each other. Like, they hug in the movie, they kiss in the movie, where in the original, he is such a cold fish... They literally never even show them together, like in the bed in the same bedroom together, do they? I guess not. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. So, in the remake, Mister De Winters is like a Twilight level, like bad boyfriend, whereas or bad husband. You know what I mean? Where like he's a little short and a little like pouty. He can have one scene where he's like, get another dress now! And it's like, oh, I'm so scared of you. But Laurence Olivier is actively staring you down with serial killer energy every scene of the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he's he's goddamn Olivier. Of course he is. I also have this thing. Did you feel like the dialogue was much more clever in the Hitchcock one. And there was sure. a lot more dialogue. Like, I felt like the Hitchcock movie was just talkier in general. Yeah, yeah, a bit. Like, and that's the other thing. Like, what this movie tries to do is, I think the whole movie is kind of framed as much more explicitly as Mrs. DeWinter's memories of this time. But it's like... You're, you're kind of jump-cutting montage style is just not really affecting me. Like, that's another problem. Yeah, but the original Rebecca had so many clever lines. And... Yeah, that too. Yeah, it's a very... It's, well, he, he can make... You know, the secret thing with Hitchcock is that, more often than not, he was a comedy director. He he His movies are very funny. I mean, Psycho is funny as shit. <laughs> One thing I really appreciate about his Rebecca is it's both darker, but it's also like a laugh out loud funny. Yeah, there are many funny parts in that. Like just certain like reaction moments that are very funny. And, and you don't expect that from a movie that's supposed to be this dark gothic horror movie. But no, it's, you know, he was a naturally entertaining filmmaker. And I think... Ben Wheatley is trying his best to be like, I'm going to make a masterpiece. I'm I have all these actors and this great set and, and all this this beautiful countryside <laughs> and I'm going to do something very very and he's just you know he's he's not suited to this material like he's just not. I really wish he had gone like really gonzo with it. Yeah. Like, this I, is not... I, I'd love to know, like, the backstory, if maybe he wanted to and was held back. Like, I I looked at the names of the producers, and I didn't look them up, but my impression from what I think I... Their names rang a bell. I think that they've done, like... They did that Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice movie, and... Uh, did you see that? I didn't. No. I said to you at one point in, with great anger about the remake, this movie is so fucking tasteful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's not and it's not to say that the original was tasteless. It, it, it has like so it has a lot of taste. But it, like, again, it's it, it's like it smothers you in its tastefulness. It's like looking in like a catalog that you know, is for, like, the upper 1%. It's, like, a very bougie movie. Yeah. It's a bougie suspense romance uh, movie. It's such a timid movie. Yeah, timid is the word. It's so timid. It's so bland. It's just on it completely unimpressive and super boring. It's a Rebecca for that couple from uh, Annie Hall. <laughs> Well, I'm shallow, and he's shallow, and we have nothing interesting to say to each other. <laughs> oh, so you, you worked out something together. <laughs> uh, final thoughts. Watch the Hitchcock, Rebecca. Uh, I can cry. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, no, it, there's a reason, again, I think that movie won Best Picture, and it, it, it holds up extremely well. 
And, I, you know, and I wasn't even, again, I wasn't necessarily expecting like, oh, this is going to blow the socks off of the Hitchcock movie because I could be open to it being its own thing and working on a different level, but it doesn't work at all in what it's trying to do. And that's, that always, that disappoints me so greatly. Yeah. I mean, I saw the Hitchcock Rebecca for the first time last night. So it's no shout to me as much as I like the movie. And I also had a few nitpicks with the Hitchcock movie. Like sure. for you, Rebecca, the Hitchcock one is like a five-star movie. For me, I would, it's like a four and a half star movie. That's, and that's totally fair. I, I'm not saying like, oh, you must love this movie. It is the best thing. You know, I'm not being like James Lipton and like, if you haven't seen it, marvelous. <laughs> but, <it> just, <laughs> but like, but it's just, I, I, I have even more appreciation for it now seeing. Me too. Just. The fact that the story beats were so much the same. Like, he didn't even change. Well, no, except for the very end, which was kind of insulting. Yeah. He, he, they, he does tack on, like, kind of a happy ending, which felt very hollow. So, yeah, at the very end, Mrs. in the remake, Mrs. Danvers does not burn to death inside of Manderley. She leaves and then just jumps off a cliff. And then the very last scene is a scene of Lily James and Army Hammer with a cheery little voiceover about how they're really in love and finding their new home, which, no. And, and, and look, like, and you can't, well, the, the second part about the cheery home thing, that's that just sucks. But it's like he missed the point of why Mrs. Danvers does that. It's like a metaphor for her burning, like, rage and love that won't, like, has no, like, place to go. And again, I think one thing the Hitchcock movie did so well is it ratcheted up the tension where every scene in the movie was an advancement of what came before, culminating in the burning of Menderley. So there's an arc, and every scene just twists, like... Twist the vice a little tighter. Whereas I felt like in the remake, there was a lot. There was a lot of like, we'll do something very, very mildly tense in a tapioca kind of way, but then we'll back off. Yeah, but that, and that that then the, the the issue there is one. By the time you get to the burning of Manderley, there hasn't been any buildup. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah, it's another thing that happened in that movie. It's like oh. Oh, yeah, because if it didn't happen, you'd have people asking, well, why didn't the house burn up? Also, one thing that I guess is kind of different is in the remake, Mrs. DeWinter actually fires Mrs. Denver with like 45 minutes left to go in the rest of the movie. Although but she then it never just, comes up yeah, again. Well, she kind of just hangs around, too. It's, it's not like she so goes. weird. But there's also, do you know what I mean? Where there's a scene like. There's these scenes where, you know, Lily James will have a difficult interaction yes. with um, Mrs. Danvers or her husband. But then the next scene will kind of soften it. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like in the Rebecca remake, Mr. DeWinter and Mrs. Danvers are like difficult people. I feel like in the Hitchcock movie, they're abusive people. Yeah. And that's but and that's really what happens in these aristocratic upper echelon societies people aren't like difficult they are abusive assholes and that's also what goes into like i know that the you know danvers de winter house at manderley isn't quite the same but it has that offshoot of being like the british aristocracy where as we bring it back around to the that charles and diana you're wrong about it's like there's a reason why we sh probably should not have a monarchy anymore. Like yeah. it's such an outdated, almost like I think Michael Hobbs called it like a human rights violation, <laughs> <laughs> even though it's not high up on the list. It's like it is a thing that like, why is this still a thing? And it's like one movie shows that and the other doesn't. Yeah, I it, it's a f the remake is a failure of classicism. <laughs> well, yeah, because the uh, remake, I feel like, totally jettisons any kind of class commentary. In the opening voiceover, Lily James says basically, like, 
I am poor and I don't have any other options. But after that, the class commentary angle is completely abandoned. I, the movie doesn't emphasize the fish out of water scene. Yeah. Like, the Hitchcock movie, I feel like, shows you more of Joan Fontaine trying to navigate the day-to-day running yes. of the estate. yes. And so we're really invested in her struggle because we see her (laughs) trying so hard to fit into this world. So we see her applying herself a lot more. Yeah. And she's also treated a lot worse by the people around her. And it creates such an intense sense of empathy for the viewer. Uh Like you feel so intensely for her. You do. You do. Again, it's like... (laughs) <laughs> to quote you, you know, about, about a movie, this movie gave me feelings. <laughs> Whereas new Rebecca's like, eh, eh, what's on my phone? Oh, uh, I was, oh this happened on Twitter. I was right. literally longing to do work. Like, I have some work. <laughs> yeah, I... me too. I can't play on... Yeah, I, I, can't, I, have to, I have to catch up on stuff. I'm probably going to do that after we stop recording. I have some work I've got to do tomorrow. <laughs> And, like, it really, when I say it has to be done tomorrow, I mean, I can do it any time tomorrow. It doesn't have to be done by a specific time tomorrow. Like, any time tomorrow is fine. I was seriously thinking, like, I wish I was doing my work right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, like, you know, it's not that horrible, but it is one of the worst movies I've seen this year. Pretty bad. Oh, she's such a lump. Yeah. But, you know, it's not a lump. Uh, our email address. So if you want to send, I know I, I tried to make a transition. It wasn't very good, but yeah. Um, visit us at wages of cinema at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, input and or advice or anything like that. Uh, we love reading your emails. We read one just last episode. Um, and uh, also we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those places. And uh, next time we are, Gonna go even deeper into that Hitchcock hole. Uh, <laughs> I, I even came up with a name for it, and I'll tell you right now. Uh, it's gonna be called Hitchcock O'Clock. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned for Hitchcock O'Clock. Uh, and uh, until next time, I'm Jack. And I'm Trash Pandacory. And the wages of cinema is Menderly. Hugs for everyone but the people who made the Rebecca remake. (laughs) All right. Good night, everybody. There's mystery, love, and laughter in Rebecca. The motion picture still unsurpassed for suspenseful romance. (laughs) 